Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of the Abolish the Monarchy podcast brought to you by Republic. I'm Graham Smith and Republic is a campaign that aims for the abolition of the monarchy as you might have guessed from the title of the podcast and you can find out more about the campaign at republic.org.uk including links to our social media and YouTube channel. Today I'm talking to Dr John Kirkhope, a leading expert on the Duchy of Cornwall and someone who has probably done more than anyone to throw a spotlight on the Duchy and how it's run by Prince Charles. Welcome John. Thank you. And I mean, most people think of the Duchy as this kind of ancient estate, you know, sort of uh, rolling hills and rustic charm and, uh, you know, the Cornish countryside and so on. Um, and it's commonly described as Prince Charles's private estate, but I take it that that veneer of respectability isn't quite the the whole story. I mean, can you sort of give us an idea of what the Duchy of Cornwall actually is? Um, I, before I answer your question directly, I'll answer it um, um, from, from the side, so to speak. The general perception of the Duchy of Cornwall is one that I shared. Um, my mother was Cornish and when I was a child I spent a great deal of time in Cornwall and there was always this vague idea that there was this thing called the Duchy of Cornwall which was rather quaint and benign and whatever and I remember driving back from Cornwall on one occasion and thinking I'm going to buy a book and find out more and it was that point <coughs> that I began to investigate. I had no preconceptions. I didn't want to stick Prince Charles against the wall and shoot him. I just was curious to know about this odd rights that it had acquired and the land holdings it had. Um, at the end of my PhD, I became radical and really quite angry because I think the Duchy of Cornwall abuses its position about something that makes me quite angry. I've, I've said before in other talks, and I'll repeat here, the Duchy of Cornwall gets away with a great deal because it's the Duchy of Cornwall. Cornwall is beaches and clotted cream and, and, and you know summer holidays and so on and so forth. So it's quaint and benign. It isn't. It isn't. One of the things you discover if you investigate the Duchy of Cornwall is A, people are frightened of it. I don't want to exaggerate. I don't want to, um, you know, gild the lily. But they are. People will not go on the record. Uh, the Duchy of Cornwall is an aggressive landowner um, and it uses its position and uh, and occasionally abuses its position in order for its economic advantage. The Duchy of Cornwall also describes itself as a private estate. The Duchy of Cornwall will describe itself whatever is to suit itself. So one minute it's a private estate, the Freedom of Information Act doesn't apply, um, you can't inquire. On the other hand, it's part of the crown and has all sorts of advantages and benefits which private estates simply don't have. Uh, it, you know, it's, it, it's a nonsense. The other thing about the Duchy of Cornwall, which is actually curious, is that in your introduction you said I'd investigated it. I think I can legitimately claim that I'm the first individual and the first lawyer to carry out a radical review of the duchy for over 200 years since in fact a man called sir george harrison about 1820 the duchy of cornwall is brilliant um and and at not allowing people to investigate i can um I, but i won't bore you with the attempts that i've made for example to examine the duchy archive and the comparison between the Duchy of Cornwall and the Duchy of Lancaster is always striking, in my view. The latter being incredibly open and generous, the Duchy of Cornwall, by contrast, um, is hostile to investigation. Hmm. 
Uh, and we'll, I mean, I'll come on to some of that investigation in a moment. I mean, it, uh, the other, the other question I suppose, which I think confuses people, is I mean, where is it? Because of course, a lot of people think of the Duchy of Cornwall as being synonymous with Cornwall, the uh, the land at the end of the, uh, the southwestern uh, peninsula, and and it, but I mean, a map of the Duchy of Cornwall shows land holdings right across the southwest and, and south England. I mean, what is that distinction? How how would you explain that distinction? The the, the the Duchy of Cornwall is is a, a, there used to be a technical term for it a, a manorial right and when the Duchy of Cornwall was created, it was very common to actually give bits of land all over the country. The Duchy of Cornwall, however, has very particular constitutional rights with regard to Cornwall, um, specifically which they choose to deny um, and overlook. For example, um, the Duchy of Cornwall holds the whole of Cornwall as freehold okay now people are generally familiar with the term freehold lots of people own their land freehold and so that the the, the 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 terms freehold and leasehold are actually fairly common it, forgive me for being fairly geeky and technical about this but the terms freehold goes back to william the conqueror and the feudal system technically the only person in the country who owns land is the sovereign everybody has an interest in land which is what freehold is now the land registry will tell you um, that the duchy of cornwall owns the whole of cornwall freehold but since of an act of 1290 called the queer Empatoris, you can't create a freehold out of a freehold so there's a real question mark about the nature of the duchy's ownership of land in cornwall and most people in cornwall in fact everybody in cornwall owns the land from the duchy what is the consequence of that well one consequence is the duchy enjoys what's known as bono vacantia which means that if you die in cornwall without any legal heirs then that land goes or that property goes to the duchy hmm. that would not happen but for the nature of its peculiar relationship with regard to cornwall the duchy of cornwall also for example appoints the sheriff in cornwall which is almost hmm. unique throughout this country and the duchy of cornwall and enjoys a number of other very particular rights. The other thing with regard to Cornwall, which is actually quite interesting, I think, is that there are a number of rights which the Duchy has, which in my view have no legal basis at all. So if you are unfortunate enough to live on the Isles of Scilly, the Duchy will claim that they, quote-unquote, own the Isles of Scilly. In my in, in, in my submission that that's a highly questionable proposition and I, I would argue in fact that there's no legal basis for that indeed the crown themselves denied the duchy owns the Isles of Scilly and the duchy's accumulated a number of rights and privileges as a consequence of deals done not because of the basis of law and the I need to pick up on the issue of Bon Vacantia. Um, mm -hmm. Again, this is just to sort of put this into context. If if someone dies without any legal heirs, mm -hmm. they haven't written a will, mm -hmm. um, and they live in you know Bristol or Cardiff or wherever, um, it goes to the treasury. Is that correct? Exactly. And so, right. yeah, and yeah, so yeah, we, yeah. but in Cornwall, and it, this is within the the uh, the area of Cornwall itself. Mm -hmm. If you die in that situation, then it goes to the Duchy of Cornwall, and therefore it does. And, and 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 indeed, some years ago, the Duchy created a the Duke of Cornwall Benevolent Fund, uh, which has really quite a lot of assets, mm -hmm. and that is used 
um, as a consequence of the choices made by the trustees of that fund. I am told, uh, though I have, um, if you're Cornish, you resent it because the money to that fund, by definition, comes from people within Cornwall. Yet it's used, for example, to send children to Gordonstone. It's been used in Dorset. I am told it's also been used by the Duke to buy property in Romania. Um, and you may remember some while ago when we had the foot and mouth outbreak, uh, Charles very grandly said he was going to contribute money from his charity. Well, effectively, it came from the Duke of Cornwall Benevolent Fund, so it didn't come out of his pocket at all. Right. No. So, essentially, he takes this money from other people's estates and then uses it for, I mean, basically to offset other costs that you might otherwise Yeah, and a great deal of it goes elsewhere. to the Prince's Trust as well, which is mm. used all over the place. Yeah. And, you know, uh, if you're the Duke of Lancaster, for example, there is a similar fund, but that money is used within Lancaster. Mm. And there's also, I guess, I mean, you know, I think they they do this charity thing as a way of almost sort of saying, look, it's okay, it's going to charity. Exactly right. You yeah, know, yeah. There, yeah, yeah. there has to be an equality yeah. between charities as well. Yeah, Why yeah. would those charities get it and yeah. not others? And you mentioned the the Isles of Scilly, um, and I mean the issue there is that uh, setting aside whether or not he does own it, he they certainly behave. Or, you know, the, the current situation is that he behaves as the landlord and owns the freehold on the majority mm. of the islands there. I, I mean, what's the impact of that on the people that live there? Well, there are a number of things. Again, um, I can't give you names because people won't. But for example, um, people on the Isles of Scilly regard the Dutch as abusing their position. Um, you know, on the one hand, for example, they won't allow enfranchisement for those people in the Isles of Scilly who are unfortunate enough to own their property from the Dutchy leasehold because they say they don't want second home owners or a lot of holiday lets. And then they precisely do exactly that. Um, you will find, I'm told, for example, that typically the Dutchy is a question of courtesy. will go to the Isles of Scilly Council and say, we want to do A, B, C and D. And if the Isles of Scilly Council say no, they say it doesn't matter, we'll do it anyway. And as you've done, as you as you know from the film that you have made, there's a great deal of frustration and anger on this. On this side. Let me give you um, a, a, a simple example. I was recently on the Isles of Scilly um, and I went to Tresco, which is really very lovely. Yeah. And there's a sort of area in, in which you can moor a boat. Um, the person to whom I spoke said that common that if you sailed to Tresco and moored your boat, then some wretched little man from the working for the Dutchy will come out and demand a mooring fee. And I can assure you they have absolutely no legal right to charge a mooring fee at all. But they insist on trying to do so and often get away with it. That's extraordinary. And I mean, I did, um, you mentioned the film that we made and we went down to uh, the Isles of Scilly a while back now and mm. it was suggested that the financial relationship between the Dutchy and the Isles is very much one way they're taking money yep. at every opportunity and yep. investing nothing in that is that your experience? Well that's true of the Dutchy generally really um, mm. they are desperately keen to generate garner whatever income that they can um, because Charles needs it um, just as a point of just as a sort of tangentially, if you will, I read in the paper the other day that Charles is, for example, provide, providing two million pounds for the security for Prince Harry, 
from quote-unquote private fortune. Utter rubbish. It's coming from the duchy. The duchy effectively is providing the security to Prince Harry. It is ludicrous. It is nonsensical. Grotesque. And uh, and we would he would then be, I guess, claiming that against tax, so that would be a lower. Oh yeah, the the, the 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 tax arrangements are extraordinary. Norman Baker's done some excellent work on this in his recent book. Mm. So yeah, he he is entitled to claim all sorts of tax reliefs which you and I could not. For example, I believe I'm writing saying he claims tax relief for the uniforms for his servants. He also claims tax relief for seven and a half gardeners who work on Highgrove, for example. Um, it is bizarre. Um, he claims tax relief, for example, for the rent he pays for Highgrove on the basis that it's used for the business, even though the rent in theory he pays comes back to him because, of course, he's entitled to the income from the duchy. It is extraordinary. I mean, it, it's worth exploring that because it is extraordinary. If you look at the duchy accounts, um, at the very back in sort of small print, it will tell you that the duchy pays, or the prince rather pays, 600,000 plus rent for Highgrove to the duchy. The reality is that a, a Highgrove is owned by the duke the income from the duchy is entitled to so what in fact happens is that in theory he pays money to the duchy which immediately comes back to him mm. he then claims tax relief on the money he pays the duchy because it's used for business use so he in theory um, receives back 600 plus thousand pounds at a net cost of 400,000 it is nonsense it is just nonsense and one of the bits, uh, one of the areas of taxation that's been looked at um, by MPs is their um, unwillingness to pay corporation tax. Because I mean, this is a well. I think when I think to, to be fair, I think you need to disentangle this. Um, the duchy claims, um, and again, I'm sorry to be loyally and, and, and geeky about this, but the duchy claims that it is unlike anything else. It's sui generis, and to agree to a degree, that's true. Fine. Okay, let's begin from there. But having said that, the Duchy's Attorney General, a, a gentleman, had, actually a charming gentleman called Jonathan Crow, in a case said that the Duchy was like what's known in the jargon as a Settled Land Act. Now, I'm not going to disentangle that because I'll bore you rigid. But needless to say, the nearest analogy we have to the Duchy is what's known as a Life Interest Trust. So let me give you a, an ordinary example. I might, for example, leave a trust for my wife on the basis she's entitled to the income for the rest of her life, but the capital will go to my children. Okay, so far? So we have a situation where we have an entity in which someone's entitled to the income but not the capital. Okay, so that entity would not pay corporation tax because corporation tax is something that companies pay. Are you with me so far? But having said that, since I'm a trustee of a trust of that sort, I can tell you that A, the individual who receives the income has to pay income tax, and B, any gains we make are subject to capital gains tax. The argument that the duchy doesn't pay capital gains tax because Charles is not entitled to income is frankly rubbish. It is frankly nonsense. No other entity which is similar to that would get away with not paying capital gains tax. So, my trust might own, I don't know, 
I know. Shares in Lloyds Bank. We we buy them, we sell them, we make a gain. We will pay capital gains tax on that gain. The trust, the the the, the, the Duchy of Cornwall does not pay capital gains tax. And the the argument that that's because Charles is not entitled the, to the capital is utterly utterly specious. They also don't pay inheritance tax either, as a matter of interest. No, indeed. But uh, the the issue of the corporation tax was looked at by MPs a little while ago, mm. and um, we we gave evidence to that mm. committee. Um, I think the argument there was that they are. I mean, it's not just registered companies who will pay corporation tax. If you if you're trading and you're making a profit um, of a certain amount, then uh, there will be tax to pay. So, for example, Republic pays uh, or would if we, if we made profit. Uh, and um, and so would uh, other organisations, but uh, and yeah, certainly MPs were were persuaded that there was a case that they um, might ought to pay that. And I think at the time, Prince Charles or the Duchy said, "Well, there's no distinction between the Duke and the Duchy; they are one and the same thing." Which you know, I think that wasn't there. Were there some queries around that in terms of contracts between the Duchy and the Duchy acting as, well, a, the, the, as a, the, the, a legal the, I person? I think there was a case, there was a case of the Woodland. Mm. Um, I think, which was very, very peculiar. And I, 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 to be honest with you, I don't remember the precise details, but as I understand it, Woodland was planted by the Duchy, and then it was discovered it was owned by Prince Charles, who sent, sent it back or sold it back to the Duchy or something, and made again. All I can say to you, and I'm, I'm happy to explore this in detail, is all I can say to you is that no, no other similar comparable entity, and by the way, when I say that, I'm talking about the description given by the Duchy's own Attorney General, would not pay capital gains tax if a capital gains arose. And that gives the Duchy clearly an economic advantage, which other similar entities simply don't enjoy. Mm. And of course, it, you know, this is a this is run as a business in terms of uh, property development and so on. Absolutely, and trading. yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. got that advantage, it's yeah. got a commercial advantage over yeah. other... Uh, and the other things. issue, of course, is that the Duchy's argument, in fact, is that they enjoy Crown immunity. Hmm. And therefore, since the various taxes act don't extend to the Crown, they don't extend to the Duchy. And again, I've explored that. And I think the basis upon which they enjoy this so-called Crown immunity is to say that it's highly questionable. And I would love for someone to actually crowdfund and take it to court because I think it, it has not been examined and, sh and should be examined. So this sort of brings me on to uh, this wider issue. There's an extent to which the laws that the rest of us have to obey uh, don't mm -hmm. always apply to the Duchy. Now, in some cases, I understand that the Duchy is simply exempted from it. And in many other cases, uh, whilst the law applies, there's no uh, criminal um, sanction or, or legal sanction if they break it. Is that, I mean, could you sort of explain? Yeah, sure. They're, that? They're basically, there are three categories of law with regard to the crown and let's keep it to the crown for the time being because the crown incorporates the duchy of lancaster and the duchy of cornwall okay um there are three t currently the analysis is that there are three sorts of laws there are laws which do not apply to the crown including the duchy those are various tax laws um freedom of information acts leasehold laws which is which is something which which is 
terribly important. Okay, mm. so the leasehold reform acts, of which there are three or four acts, don't apply because there's a crown exemption clause, and the principle is that unless an act specifically says this applies to the crown it does not except by necessary implication and various other legal jargon of that sort okay so far yep there are laws uh, which do apply to the crown but if the crown breaks them there's no criminal sanction and that applies to things like the archaeology act and 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 um, natural england act and all sorts of acts of marine coastal acts and all sorts of acts which means that in theory the law applies but if the crown breaches them uh, there is no criminal sanction Okay, the, the most ludicrous example I can give you, for reasons best known to themselves, in 1998, the then Labour government decided it was necessary to pass an act of parliament called, I think, the Nuclear Explosions Act, which means that if you create a nuclear explosion, it, it's a criminal offence. Hmm. Why you would need an act to say that, I frankly can't imagine. <laughs> However, if you read that act, it will say that this act applies to the Crown, but if either the Sovereign or the Duke of Cornwall, Prince Charles, breaks the act, there's no criminal sanction. Can you imagine anything more nonsensical than that? What's interesting about that, by the way, is that I explored um, tediously the various acts for, for which this crown exemption clause applied and I wrote to the cabinet office um, with whom by then I had a quite a good relationship and said look I can either make 20 FOI requests or we can have a conversation and I prefer a conversation because frankly I've got better things to do in my life and I'm sure you do too so they agreed um, to meet me and I said you know these clauses vary in detail so I assume that I'm a new um, a new lawyer working for the government office and I want to know whether I should include this um, um, clause or not what guidance would I, I have and what precedence would you offer me and they said we don't have any we would discuss it which I don't believe for one second I just think it's complete nonsense so we have laws from which the duchy is completely exempt leasehold reform act we have laws for which they are um, apply to them but if they break them there, there's no sanction and we have laws which apply to them period it's worth bearing in mind by the way that in every other regard Prince Charles is a private citizen that's a long established legal principle it goes back to the 18th century even the 17th century so in every other regard um, you know the, the classic legal expression going back to the 17th century is the heir to the throne is a subject all of the crown albeit the most eminent subject so Prince Charles in every other regard is subject to the laws the rest of us are subject to so the exemptions that we're talking about are in his role or capacity as Duke of Cornwall precisely and that's actually the the the, the to go back to where we started, Graham, that's precisely the point. If you say to most people that actually his privileges and his constitutional advantages relate to the fact that he's Duke of Cornwall, most people would find that extraordinary. But that's the case. It is as Duke of Cornwall he enjoys crown exemption, for example. Um, it is as Duke of Cornwall he enjoys bona vacantia and the right to dolphins on the uh, on, 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 you know, if any dolphins that wash up on the coast of Cornwall, and so on and so forth. So it's worth asking then, why is he Duke of Cornwall? What is that role? And and could you sort of set out who is eligible for it, who gets it, and and would William be Duke of Cornwall if uh, it's, it's, uh, Charles it's, it's dies? It's a very interesting thing because it shows um, 
um, the curiosity and one of the joys to be fair it shows the curiosity of English history we have an individual um, Edward III um, who created the Duchy of Cornwall in 1337 for the benefit of his son also called Edward Edward of Woodstock as it happens um, now the reason it was created it is said and there's good evidence for this, is that way back then in the 14th century, there was no assumption that the eldest son of the sovereign would become sovereign. Yeah, there was real debate about it. What happens if the eldest son of the sovereign died, for example? Would it that mean you would pass to the next eldest son of the sovereign and so on? Are you with me so far? And one of the arguments it was that it was created in order to establish that the Duke of Cromwell was always heir to the throne. Okay, so far? Now, there was some debate, in fact, and the present position is that the Duke of Cornwall is the eldest living son of the monarch being heir to the throne. So, for example, if Charles had died before William and Harry had been born, Andrew would become heir to the throne. Yes, he would have become Duke of Cornwall. If, however, Charles now dies, William would not become Duke of Cornwall because he's the grandson of the sovereign. Now, that of itself is subject to considerable legal debate because most people agree that the original charter said that it was the eldest son of the sovereign heir to the throne. Hmm. Yeah? So, so that the, is... So there's two tests, essentially, for them to pass to become Duke. You have to be both the eldest son of the monarch and heir to the throne. Exactly right, yeah. So if Charles were to say tomorrow, well, I'm... Yeah, I'm going to convert to Catholicism. I'm no longer going to be uh, in line for the um, uh, for the position of king. He would no longer be the heir, and therefore exactly would no right. be Duke yeah. of yeah. just, just as an aside, just to make you smile, the uh, Bill of Rights provide that a Catholic cannot become sovereign, hmm. but there's nothing to say a Hindu, Muslim, Methodist, <laughs> or whatever yeah. else. Anyway, that's by the by. Indeed, I mean, in fact, this is uh, now a law that was passed as recently as 2011 when they reformed the Act and agreed yeah. to continue with that. Uh, yeah, that exactly right. Yeah. The, um, so what happens, uh, let's say, you know, God forbid, uh, Prince Charles died uh, tomorrow and um, we're left with William as the heir, but mm. not the son of the monarch. Mm. What happens mm. to the title and, uh, and to the uh, the title the goes into abeyance, and that's one of the curious things about the Duchy of Cornwall. Um, as as one writer, a man called A.L. Rouse, said, there is there is always a duchy, but there may not be a duke. And so it's what, one of the very very odd things. So what happens for to the in, indeed if, indeed for half the time. Um, that the Duchy of Cornwall existed, there has been no Duke. If, for example, you consider the reign of Elizabeth mm. I, there was no Duke. And for two-thirds of the time, there has been either been no Duke or the Duke has been a minor. So it's been actually run by the Crown for that period of time. So that would happen again. The crown, so the money then goes. Well, the money actually, the, the money, the the, the 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 money is then used to continue to support the heir to the throne. I think it's. I can't remember the name of the Act now, but the 2011 Act provides so that the Duchy of Cornwall has become a convenient way of subsidising the heir to the throne. Even when there's no duke. Yeah, but having said that, um, when Charles, bearing in mind that Charles was a minor from 1952 when the present queen came to the throne and uh, 19 whenever he was 21 he was born in 48 1969 nine tenths of the money for the duchy went to the crown the other one tenth was accumulated for charles which he inherited when he got to be 21 
and that was about five million quid in today's terms i mean the fact is it, it comes with the job as it were i mean if 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 there were no monarch and no heir to the monarch then you would assume therefore that the money would then continue to go to the treasury yeah it, it's actually uh, just just again to go back you may be interested in this um it's one of those fluke of histories there was a wonderful chancellor um called spring rice mr spring rice um he was chancellor when victoria came to the throne yeah Mm. And he was very determined that the, the, the monarch should, should surrender the traditional income rights of the sovereign to this, and in exchange receive a civil list. Yeah? Mm. Yep. He was also determined that they should surrender the Duchy of Cornwall and the Duchy of Lancaster. And the reason that did not happen, and the reason he was persuaded to allow the crown to keep the income for the Duchy of Cornwall and Duchy of Lancaster, is the fact that actually Victoria was female. And therefore, under Salic law, could not receive the income from Hanover. So, as a compensation for the loss of income from Hanover, which William the Third had, William the Fourth had enjoyed, and George the Fourth had enjoyed, and so on and so forth, they were allowed to keep the Duchy of Cornwall and Duchy of Lancaster. Now, what's interesting about that is that the only public um, role that Albert ever enjoyed was a Lord of the Stannaries for the Duchy of Cornwall and he was a remarkable man and he identified the fact that every time you entered into an argument with the Treasury and you got back rights to the Duchy of Cornwall you were effectively retrieving rights to the Crown which they give not by way of the civil list so there are endless disputes in the 19th century in which the duchy made various claims and every time they succeeded they clawed back from the treasury that which had other been otherwise mm. been surrendered he was very clever and very astute and very determined mm. and i mean but this point about the the attempt to uh, retrieve the two duchies for the treasury that mm. was um abandoned because the uh, queen victoria couldn't claim the income from Hanover. I mean, yeah, and if you think about it, that I mean, it's nonsense, isn't it? Since she no longer had the rights to the income from Hanover, she kept the duchy. If, mm. th you know, it, it is on those things, you know, that, that these things, otherwise the Duchy of Cornwall and Duchy of Lancaster would, would have been surrendered in the way that the other rights Indeed. to the crown and they would have got a civil list in exchange. So it would have, in the past, I guess, it, I mean, it, when, when uh, the king surrendered the rights to the crown estate the duchies were essentially part of that um body of land as it were but they, they no, were, no, they were I, separated I, out. No, again i think yeah. one, one needs to be careful one doesn't get bogged down in too much detail the first civil list was under william the third in about 1698 and when he surrendered them that included the duchies for reasons that is not clear when it came to George I, second and third, in particular George II, the Duchy of Cornwall and Duchy of Lancaster were not included in the Crown Estates that were surrendered, largely because they were irrelevant. They'd been ignored for years, they produced £2.26 or peanuts, so no one was that bothered about it. It was, it was Albert who recognised the potential virtues 
of the Duchy of Cornwall and indeed the Duchy of Lancaster and the opportunities that offered for retrieving money to the monarchy. Um, well, I suppose the, the underlying great... point is that there is a claim there for the Treasury to say, well, you know, this should be surrendered to the Treasury. I mean, it's not personal. Well, well that question, the Lord Chancellor in 1837 actually said he should be surrendered. Clement mm. Attlee in 1936 said it should be surrendered. Mm. And indeed, actually, if you read my PhD, there was a Treasury, a civil service minute in 1936, which said that the reason they're not surrendered was a matter of policy. Mm. It was a matter of policy, and one of the arguments was that it was there was some advantage in the crown having some independence from the state. Yeah. It's a fairly species argument. Mm. The other thing about this situation, which is quite important, is that they're going back to 1620, I think, and certainly in Albert's time, every time the duchy raised a dispute, it was concluded that it would be quote unquote unseemly for the Duke of Cornwall to take his parent to court. <laughs> so what in fact happened time and again was that they did a deal, a deal which was never discussed with Parliament, a deal which was never discussed in the courts. Mm -hmm. And there are endless deals of that sort, some of which are major and some of which are minor, which have never been tested by anybody at all. And the legal basis for those is questionable to say the least, the most mm -hmm. obvious being crown exemption. And essentially it's a uh, comfortable arrangement made by between the monarch and the government and, and oh yeah i mean i let, let me give you an up-to-date mm. example shall i and this is fairly recent um the duchy claimed a way back in 1860 and again 1870 and blah 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 that they were entitled to the right to royal mine in cornwall broadly speaking the, the the law says that actually gold and silver mine gold and silver mines are the property of the crown if you want to mine them you need to get a license yeah um, the Duchy, the, the Crown said, no, you're not entitled. It is a right of such high eminence that it could only be passed specifically and not by implication. I won't bore you with the legal arguments which went on. As recently, I think it's five years ago, since there is some suggestion now that the mines in Cornwall will be reopened because of gold and silver. Again, the deal's been done. They've agreed any profits which arrive from gold and silver in Cornwall will be shared. There's no legal basis for that. The Crown, for over 150 years, have said you're not entitled to it, yet they've done a deal. It's not, being, it's not a big deal. It's not a big issue. There's not no great money involved. But they've done a deal. They've done a deal without consulting Parliament. They've done a deal without consulting the courts. They've just done a convenient deal because it would be unseemly for Prince Charles to sue his mother. I guess one of the points that we make is that, you know, we, the lost assets and the lost income from uh, the duchies, which uh, in my view should be going to the treasury and being spent as any other money that the treasury has, um, you know, that all counts towards the cost to the taxpayer of uh, the monarchy and it, taking it back, as it were, into um, or the, the monarchy surrendering it in the future. I mean, that's not a confiscation of private land. Is it? This is a transfer of land from one, from the crown, as it were, to Parliament. I mean, yes. Is, is that accurate? Yes. I mean, you know, I, I don't see that there's any distinction between the Duchy of Cornwall or indeed the Duchy of Lancaster and other the crown estates which have been uh, which have been surrendered mm. in exchange for the civil list. Mm. I don't. Um, I, I repeat what I said. You don't surrender it because it's a private estate and you can do what you like with it, except, of course, when it's part of the crown, in which case mm. you claim all sorts of exemptions and tax benefits. Mm. It, it, it's frankly, it's a specious and nonsense argument. Mm. 
what is also interesting in fact is that governments will not take on the Duchy of Cornwall I can assure you from legal cases that if you challenge the Duchy of Cornwall in court or indeed Prince Charles the establishment will become very frightened they just don't want that debate they don't want that argument um, and one thing that's always quite shocked me actually if I'm being entirely honest is that I've always wondered why the Labour Party have not been more aggressive mm. in pursuing mm. this issue the we, we're uh, running out of time but it, I mean I guess the summary very sort of brief summation is that we've got this situation where Prince Charles is Duke of Cornwall he has this access to this very large um, sort of landed estate and business empire and so on which is, has these all these sorts of advantages through its various unique exemptions and which mm -hmm. has a real impact on people such as the mm -hmm. leaseholders and so on mm -hmm. um, and which then costs us the taxpayer many millions of pounds and which I believe mm -hmm. gives him a private income of around 20 21 million pounds a year I mean that 20, is, 21 million currently yeah, yeah. so yeah. I mean and you know, to my mind I was certainly shocked when I went to Isle Sicily as to how angry people were about the way in which they were uh, treated and knowing that that's happening and uh, and the, so much of that money is then going into the hands of Prince Charles I think is uh, is pretty shocking well go go and speak to the people in Newton St Lowe in near Bath for example mm. or go and speak to some of the people in Cornwall um, you know I mean it's it's um, go and speak to the people who want to moor their boats in the Helston River for example it, mm. go and speak to um, the people who run the Torpoint Ferry for God's sake because I don't know if you know the Torpoint Ferry but every time you go across that ferry then part of your fee goes to the duchy mm. and they're aggressive in negotiating go and speak to the people who want to run ice cream vans on Polzeth Beach for example mm. it goes on and on and on mm. okay well we're going to have to leave it there but thank you very much uh, for your time and also thank you for you know huge amounts of work that you've done on this because it's been hugely important I think in uh, in throwing a spotlight on a lot of these issues which otherwise would remain uncovered um, so uh, it's really really important so thank you for joining us for this episode of the abolish the monarchy podcast the documentary we mentioned earlier the man who shouldn't be king can be found on republic's youtube channel a link to which is at the foot of the republic website and you can find out more about Republic at republic.org.uk, including ways you can support the campaign, whether by joining, donating or getting involved.